Amen. All right. So we are in Genesis chapter 14. And let's go ahead and start reading in verse 1. There's a lot of interesting things I want to cover in this chapter. It says, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariot, king of Elisar, Ketelomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that these made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemaber, the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. So what we have right here, we've got four kingdoms coming to fight against Sodom and Gomorrah. And I feel like we should be cheering them on, uh, you know, when I'm reading this story. But uh, they end up being the bad guys, end up losing to a good guy. But in verse 3, it says, All these were joined together in the Vale of Siddim, which is the Salt Sea. Okay, And this is what I believe what we refer to today as the Dead Sea which is kind of interesting. The Dead Sea, that location there is where they believe uh, was the uh, historical location of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, but at one time, like we saw last week, that area was all well-watered and beautiful. It was like the Garden of Eden. Now it's a very nasty area. It's not, it's not a good place anymore. And I believe it's because of the destruction that God brought out on it and because of the curse that God put on it that's going to go even into the millennium. Because Sodom, God wanted it uh, to never be inhabited again because it was a horrible place. So notice here in verse 4, it says, Twelve years they served Ketelomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. Okay? Now again, I, I don't like getting crazy in numerology stuff, but we saw the thirteen Sunday night when we went, you know, thirteen chapter 13, verse 13, 13 words, and it's about the Sodomites. And then here we have them in the thirteenth year rebelling. And what's typical about teenagers, you know, when they become a teenager in the 13th year, all of a sudden they get rebellious. I don't know. There's some, sometimes I do think there is something to some numerology, but you can definitely go off the deep end with it. There's no doubt about that. But it says in verse 5, And in the fourth year came Ketelomer and the king that was with him and smote the Rephaims in Ashtaroth, Carnium and the Zuzims in Ham, and the Emims in Sheva Kurathaim. Okay, now that term Rephaim, that means giant. So these were giants here that it's referring to that they defeated here. And um, it mentions in there the Zumims, uh, Zuzims and the Emims. Um, look at what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 2. So we know they were giants too. These are all references to giants uh, that they defeated. But it says in Deuteronomy 2.9, And the Lord said unto me, Distress not the Moabites, Neither contend with them in battle, for I will not give thee of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar unto the children of Lot for a possession. Listen, the Emims dwelled there in times past, a people great and many and tall as the Anakims, which were accounted giants as the Anakims, but the Moabites called them Emims. So what's interesting about this, this is years later in the future in Deuteronomy when it mentions it, but it mentions how the Emims and the Zumims, they, they had lived there in the past, uh, and this is referring to how God gave that land to Lot for possession, which is interesting because we're gonna, we see in the, after God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah that you know, Lot and his daughters, you know, they leave there, but obviously they weren't real far because that's where the Moabites and the Ammonites ended up going. So it just kind of shows um, in Deuteronomy how there were still some, you know, uh, they were kind of still in that land ever since the days of Sodom, but that land was ultimately, or before all that happened where Lot went there, it was defeated by these armies. So again, just kind of given all that, what we're seeing here, it's given all this history of where the people came from and how they got the land that they have. 
So uh, it's just kind of interesting when you follow all this stuff, if you're paying attention to it. Again, it seems like random facts when you're reading Genesis, but it's not. All these things are connected, so it does, it does a lot of good to pay attention to these things. But anyway, uh, it says in verse 6, And the Horites in their Mount Seir unto El Paran, which is by the wilderness, and they returned and came to Enmishphat, which is Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites that dwell in Hazaz on Tamar. And there went out the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, the same as Zoar. And they joined battle with them in the vale of Siddim, with Kedileomer, king of Elam, with Tidal, king of nations, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings with five and the vale of Siddam was full of slime pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there, and they that remained fled to the mountain, and they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals, and they went their way. Now, this passage right here, all right, you're not going to really get anything doctrinally from this, but this was preached in the 90s. Okay, This passage was often referred to in the 90s. I distinctly remember this. Because this in the 90s, it was when uh, they were talking about don't ask, don't tell. And they were having the whole debate about whether or not to let homos in the military. And I remember it was funny because preachers were always bringing up this passage here and showing how, you know, gays are no good in a fight. You know, because here we see them all running. And, you know, and then these, you know, these kingdoms of homos, they couldn't fight these guys. But then Abraham you know, and 300 and some real men come along and they take care of business. And so they would, they would use that and they would do some of the funniest things, just making fun of homos and just, I mean, and talking about how wrong it is for them to be in the military. That was in the nineties. Okay. And again, it's not on YouTube, so it didn't happen. But folks, I was there. It happened. This, I, I, every time I read this passage, I think about some of the sermons that I heard. I can name some of these preachers and just and talk about some of the, the things that they did. But again, I'm not going to do that because I don't have the proof. But I'm telling you, I was there. I remember it. And this was a go-to passage to prove queers shouldn't be in the military. Amen. And, hey, you know, I, I agree. <laughs> we'll still preach that Amen. here. But at the same time, too, I've heard it said, you know, let them join the military. You know, put them on the front lines and give them squirt guns. You know, I, I, you know so I guess I don't have a problem with that. Let them wear dresses and everything and go fight in the Muslim countries. And what do you think is going to happen then? So uh, I, I can't say I've got a problem with that. But anyway, that was what they were preaching in the 90s. So I, I doubt we'll hear much of that from them anymore. But we'll hear it here. But anyway, so uh, verse 12 says, And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite brother of Eshcol, the brother of Aner, and these were confederate with Abram. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. So, again, this is the verse we've been going to to show that there was a lot of people with Abraham. He had just 318. These were just his trained servants, the ones that were ready to fight. So that tells you how many people are involved in all these stories when you're just seeing Abraham. There's a lot of people. But something else to just kind of pay attention to here, that this, this kind of helps us understand how the book of Genesis is written and how to interpret some things. Notice how it mentions he pursued them unto Dan. Well, where's Dan? All right, Dan is in the northern part 
of Israel, because you always hear it referring from Dan unto Naphtali. You see that referred to a lot. And so he pursued him unto Dan. Well, anybody see a problem with them referring to Dan right here? Dan wasn't even born yet. Dan wasn't even born yet. And I bring that up because I showed Sunday night when we were in chapter 13 that in Genesis chapter 12, when it refers to Abraham being in Bethel, it wasn't named Bethel then. That came later with Jacob. But at the same time, that shows us that this is written to Israel, showing them, you know, just kind of their history and, you know, where the, and so they're saying locations they would understand. And so it's the same thing right here too. You know, it, it's, if he would have said the name of the town or the city, wherever it was back then, they might not have known what he's talking about. So it refers to Dan. So the same thing too, if we were doing some kind of history on the United States and somebody's talking about a place in Illinois, you know, before it was Illinois, you know, they would give it, you know, they might in telling the story, refer to it as the modern name. So we would know what it was talking about. Cause I don't know what rock falls used to be called. You know, I don't even know if we have any history, you know, but, it, it, you know, but that's, that's how the book of Genesis is written too. So you'll see names of places before they were actually named that. So uh, that's just another example of that right there. But anyway, so verse 15 says, and he divided himself against them, he and his servants by night and smote them and pursued them unto Hova, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also brought again, his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. So something that we need to understand about this chapter before I start doing some speculating, all right, which is what I'm about to do a little bit, uh, but uh, is we need to understand exactly what this chapter is talking about, what facts it's laying out. Because what I just showed you, too, about how Dan and Bethel were referred, you know, they were calling it that, even though it wasn't named that then. Again, what people often do, they will often... You know, they're looking for something that they want to find in the passage. It's like they want to know more about what was going on before the flood. And so what they do is based on certain information that, that that's given, they go and they come to all the wrong conclusions, you know, when it comes to things. Because they're, when, whenever the Bible mentions the things that it does, it's mentioning them for a reason. And if you ignore what the chapter's trying to talk about, you're going to end up missing the boat on some things. And that's what happens when it comes to the whole sons of God being giants and everything. They're, they're, they're looking for what they want to find. And they're, instead of paying attention to, wait, why did the Bible bring this up? Why are these certain facts? You're, they're missing the main part of the story, trying to find, you know, you know, a fairy tale that they like. And you can't do that. And so... Uh, but, but at the same time, too, you know, I don't think it's wrong to speculate as long as you just don't start forming weird doctrines from it. Okay, And I'm, I'm going to give you a little speculation uh, in this chapter, but I'm going to call it what it is, speculation. I could be wrong, but at the same time, and then I'm also going to show you how much doctrine was formed from this chapter that I never would have figured this out. But at the same time, when I see how much doctrine in the New Testament comes from Genesis chapter 14, I'm just like, it makes me want to pay attention to every detail of the Scripture even more. That's what it really does. And again, I think where we need to be digging deep is in the chapters after chapter 11. You know, go ahead and dig deep everywhere, but some people are going too deep and digging all the way down to hell, the way I, think, the way I look at it. But 
Uh, we, we don't want to do that. But so a few facts about this chapter. First, this chapter is chronicle, chron- chronicling historical events that were relevant to Israel and the history of their nation, as well as the history of other nations that they were currently enemies with at the time this book was written. Okay, so keep that in mind. This passage, too, that we're about to read is laying out historical facts that are not necessarily trying to teach us what I am going to speculate on. Okay, it's given these facts for a reason. Now, based on these facts, I'm going to give some speculation. Okay, but I could still be wrong. You know, because these facts, though, that they can help us prove that Sodom and Gomorrah was no exception when it comes to things that the Bible teaches about reprobates. Okay. Now, understand, even if these facts were not in Genesis, what we teach about reprobates would still be true. And what I'm about to speculate would still be true to a certain extent because of the fact that, you know, because of what Romans 1 teaches, there are certain things that we know. But I think we can get a little more detailed because of the facts that we see here in Genesis 14. But don't think that Genesis 14 is about the reprobate doctrine. Okay? It's not. That's not what it's about. Okay? So even without these facts, you know, we would know certain things about the reprobate doctrine are true. And we would know certain things about Sodom and Gomorrah's history is true, even if we did not have these facts. So what are these facts? Well, look at verse 17. It says, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him, talking about Abraham, after his return from the slaughter of Ketelomer, and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shava, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, the son of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons, and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said unto the king of Sodom, I have lifted up mine hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou should say, I have made Abram rich." Save only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. So, notice here in this passage that we see the king of Sodom and the king of Salem in the same place. You know, in, in the presence of Abraham. You know what this tells me? Because, and I personally believe Melchizedek was Jesus. I believe it was an Old Testament uh, appearance of Jesus Christ. And we're going to be looking at uh, some passages in Hebrews on that. But here he is in the presence. The king of Sodom is in the presence of Melchizedek. Now, I don't know what all took place between those two. I don't know if Melchizedek ever talked with the king of Sodom, if there was any interaction, if there was ever a time when he tried to straighten him out. I, I really don't know for sure. But I do think it's interesting that here you've got Abraham, Melchizedek, right there in the presence of the king of Sodom. You know what? And that, you know what that tells me? That tells me Sodom had a chance to get right. Because they obviously weren't reprobate at this point because God allowed Abraham to deliver these kingdoms. They weren't there yet. And I, there's, there's no doubt in my mind, based on what we're seeing here, Sodom had a chance during this time. This would have been a great opportunity for them to get right, for them to get saved. They didn't do it. Okay? Now, uh, I said, 
I know, I already know, even without these facts, that they had a chance because Romans 1 proves the mark of a reprobate is that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Okay, A reprobate is someone who had a chance, who knew the truth, and they rejected the truth. You don't become a reprobate without that. Okay, That's why I don't believe that everyone that has, you know, maybe participated in certain abominations is necessarily a reprobate because some people, you know, were raised up, they were abused in these things, things were done against their will, they got, you know, and it, you know, while, so while they might have participated in something, it's not like they were desiring it, it's not like they were burned in their lust, you know, I don't think they've been given over to a reprobate mind. I think they're a victim of a reprobate in many cases, and I think those people, but what, when you get to that point, though, where you've had that chance, you know, the truth been show, has been shown to you, and you end up going that direction, there's no doubt about it. So you're going to have a tough time convincing me when the king of Sodom had interaction with Abraham, with Melchizedek, that they never had a chance. And you know what? They even had Lot, too. Now, we, you know, we know Lot wasn't a very good example, but you know, you're going to have a tough time proving to me that he never tried with any of them. So I, I just to, to act like Sodom and Gomorrah never had a chance, it goes against what Romans 1 teaches. And, but then, too, it's just given the facts that we have about people they interacted with, there's no doubt they had a chance. Okay? There's no doubt. And people will bring up what Jesus said, uh, and I don't have the verse in front of me, where it talks about you know, if the mighty works would have been done in Sodom, you know, they, would have, they would have repented. Okay. Now, at the same time, so why didn't Melchizedek do the mighty works? You know, God's not always going to do mighty works to get you know, you know to get people saved. Okay. Sometimes all they're going to get is the preaching of the gospel, and if they say no to it, that's enough. You know, I would think too the fact that you know God allowed Abraham to deliver them; they were in the presence of Jesus Christ, and they never got right. I think that's enough right there. Okay. And you know what? If Lord would have wanted to, he could have done the mighty works, but you know what? He didn't want to. He didn't do it. So, um, you know, just because he didn't do the mighty works doesn't mean they never had a chance. Okay? So I, I don't think there's any contradiction there, um, but people kind of get sidetracked on that, trying to prove they weren't reprobate. Because the thing is, too, when it says that the mighty works have been done, well, at what point? You know, at Genesis 19, you know, is that what it's talking about? Or could it have been talking about in Genesis 14? Or Genesis 13? Or even before Genesis 13? You know, before they were exceeding wicked. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us that. So to just throw out Romans 1 because you're just so desperate to get homo saved, you know, it's, it's, it's messed up. Okay, But it's amazing what people will do to just, you know, be able to go easy on the homos. It's ridiculous. So let's look at, though, let's, let's take a look at Melchizedek. Because what's interesting about Melchizedek. And this is what makes me want to just, I mean, agonize over every verse in the Bible and just look deep. Because think about this. Melchizedek is only mentioned in the Old Testament twice. He's mentioned right here in Genesis where there's only like three verses talking about him. And then in Psalms chapter 110, verse 4, it says, "...the Lord has sworn and will not repent." Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we know for sure what that's talking about because that's mentioned, that verse is mentioned three times 
in the book of Hebrews. It's mentioned in chapters 5, 6, and 7. It mentions that verse. Now, and, and I don't know this, but I, I just wonder, you know, what did the people of Israel think when they read that verse in Psalms? What, what would that have meant to them? There's only three verses about Melchizedek in the book of Genesis. And then all of a sudden he gets this mention in a prophetic verse in the book of Psalms. You know, what were they thinking? Okay, because at the same time, too, while I say I want to like agonize over every verse, too, I don't. You know, I don't think we should go and try to find doctrines as deep as the ones that are revealed to us in Hebrews, because those things that are mentioned that we're going to see in Hebrews that are that are based off this passage in Genesis chapter 14. These things were given under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. So we know they're true. If I pull something that deep from a random scripture, I might be getting it very wrong. But at the same time, though, I do. I don't believe there. I don't think there's any way anybody ever would have read Genesis chapter 14 and Psalms chapter 110 and would have known before Jesus Christ came what the book of Hebrews 5, 6 and 7 teach. There's there's no way. Okay, but when you see what is written in the book of Hebrews, we know that that's true. We know that's a fact, which I think it's something that God put in the scriptures on purpose, but he did not reveal until later because it wasn't needed back then. But, you know, I personally think this, and I don't know what passage it is, I think there's probably just tons of stuff in our Bible that has not been revealed, that will be revealed, like in the Millennial Kingdom, and maybe some things will even be revealed after that. Things that we've just been reading for years and not thinking anything of, we're just going to go in, in the Millennial Kingdom and Jesus is just going to open up the Bible and just show us more. Some be like, what in the world? Okay? And you know, when that happens, like I said, I don't think I'm going to figure out those things now, right? I'm not going to preach a message. Uh, I'm not going to preach a series of messages, messages called things that I now under, that I understand that none of the rest of y'all are going to get until the millennium. All right? I, I'm not arrogant enough to think that I'm going to pull some doctrines out of the Bible you know, and, and I'm going to get him before the millennium comes. I don't think that at all. But when the millennium comes and Jesus starts pulling things out of the scripture, I want to at least have been familiar with that passage that he's talking about. And so I, that's why we're going to pay attention to all the Bible. But let's look at a few things here, because I think this is interesting, because all we see in Genesis is Melchizedek. He blesses Abraham and that Abraham gives him tithes. Okay? Yet much can be learned from this one verse. And what we see in Psalms. So, what is learned from these two mentions? Well, let's go over to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 5. Hebrews, chapter 5. I need to turn over there. I didn't put it in my notes. So, first off, we see that a new order of priests was prophesied in the Old Testament, proving that Jesus was a legitimate high priest. Okay? So uh, look what it says in verse 6. It says, As he saith also in another place, referring to Psalms, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus being a priest after the order of Melchizedek, this right here is an example of strong meat. Okay? Often we think strong meat is just like hard preaching, you know, ripping on people, you know, adultery, ripping on homos and things like that. No, strong meat, that's the deep doctrine. Okay? 
This is now, and this is another thing too that just irritates the snot out of me when people start preaching weird stuff in the book of Hebrews. All right, and start preaching you can lose your salvation from the book of Hebrews, teaching that you know the book of Hebrews is just for Jews and it's a tribulation epistle, or teaching Calvinism from the book of Hebrews. It's like, are you serious? You're going to go take that one verse and that one phrase out of that passage, and you're going to teach some weird doctrine that's nowhere else in scriptures in a passage that says about itself that it's strong meat. And you know what? But they get away with teaching that false doctrine because here it's strong meat. And if you all are a bunch of weak Christians and I want to deceive you, I can go and I can, I'll go to these strong meat passages and you're not going to be able to refute what I'm teaching because you're not ready for meat yet. But let me show you uh, why this is strong meat. So first off, uh, look at what it says in verse um, chapter 6. All right, look what it says in chapter 6. It says there in verse 1, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again. Or, you know what, I'm sorry, right, let's start in verse four, uh, 13 of chapter 5. So it says, For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Okay, and he says this after he had mentioned our precept of the order of Melchizedek. Okay, let's get context. Okay, often preachers get up and they want to preach in the milk of the word, and you know, and then they're trying, you know, and they're they're talking about how it's just like you know the easy preaching, you know, the not real hard stuff, and then the meat is the hard preaching. But let let's look at the context. He's brought up how Jesus was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Then he talks about you know, the milk of the word, and then verse 14, but strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So strong meat is for someone who's skillful in the word. That means you're going to have a, a, not just a basic knowledge. You're going to have a strong knowledge of the word of God. That tells me what we are about to read here in chapter 6 and 7 is an example of strong meat. So when we go to verse 1, he says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrines of Christ, let us go on unto perfection or completion, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of the laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So he's saying, you know, it's time to move on to perfection. Okay? We already did the foundational things here. All right, you know, we've got those things down, but now it's time to go on to the deep stuff and then jump down to verse, um, let's jump down to verse uh, 11. So it says, And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made promise to Abraham, he could swear by no greater. He swear by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, will sure and steadfast, which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever 
after the order of Melchizedek. Okay? Now this is there's a lot, there's so much we could say about this right here. But first off, he's bringing this up because he's going into strong meat because the the Jews, they were used to thousands of years of offering sacrifices and having a priest, a Levitical priesthood. Remember in the book of Judges when there was the man that went and he like made priests of his own household? You realize that was an abomination. Even Israel, well, many people in Israel understood this is wrong. This is not according to the law. Priests are supposed to be from Levi. The bloodline did matter in that stuff. The high priest was supposed to be a descendant of Aaron. The scripture was crystal clear on that. And it was a bad thing in Israel's history when people would come along and they would just make the lowest of the people priests. That's not what they were supposed to do. So all of a sudden now, you've got, I believe, the Apostle Paul coming along and he's saying, Jesus is the high priest. No, no way. No, no. Hey, we've got this down in our checklist. All right, this was this was written to the new eye of beers of the first generation. All right, on our checklist, we see on there he's got to be. You know, in order to be qualified, he's got to be from the tribe of Levi. That Jesus does not meet that check mark. Is that not, is that not exactly what they were doing? He's not. He does. Jesus isn't qualified to be a priest according to the Levitical law. Now, let me ask you. Where in the book of Genesis would we see Jesus qualified to be the high priest? You're not going to get it from Genesis chapter 14. Now, we do see that mentioned in Psalms. But at the same time, that wasn't real clear, was it? I mean, I wonder what they thought about that. But at the same time, God put it in there knowing what he was going to do. Knowing from the beginning what he was going to do. So... One thing that we see here, what we're going to see taught in chapter 7 of Hebrews, and we don't have time to go through all of chapter 7, but chapter 5, 6, and 7, Melchizedek is mentioned, but mainly in chapter 7. He's going into strong meat here. And so one, th- uh, one thing that we see is the fact that Melchizedek blessed Abraham, just that fact, proved that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. That's going to be mentioned here. In chapter 7, look what it says in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Okay, that's what we just read about in Genesis 14. It says, to whom Abraham gave a tenth part of all. Mentioned in Genesis 14, he gave him tithes of all. So it's laying out the facts that we see in Genesis 14. And only the facts of Genesis 14 and what's mentioned in Psalms. That, that's all. There, there's, it's not given any extra revelation here. So it says, um, to whom Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest forever. Now, this verse right here is where we get the idea that this was... Probably Jesus, because, I mean, without father, mother, not having beginning of days or end of life, I do think that's literal. All right. But at the same time, too, he could be saying this because of the fact that this was a priest that was greater than Abraham. It was a priest that was referred to in the book of Psalms when prophesying about the Messiah, saying that he would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Well, let me ask you, 
if the book of Genesis and the book of Psalm mention the priesthood of Melchizedek and the order of Melchizedek, is it safe to say that that order was a legitimate order, order and that the Jews would have recognized it as a legitimate order? I think it's I think it's safe to say that yeah they would have to recognize that because the book of Psalms the book of Psalms mentions it well let me ask you this if a or if a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek it uh, was in the Old Testament let me ask you where did that order come from because the Bible does not give us any of his ancestors nor does it give us any of his descendants it only ever mentions him. Unlike the priesthood of Aaron, where we do see that order where it started. It started, you know, in Mount Sinai. We see that God chose Aaron to be that high priest. He was the first one listed. It was written in the law that, you know, he would be the priest. And that line was supposed to stay with him. So the Old Testament law, it shows us the order of of, Aaron. the priesthood of Aaron, and it shows us where it starts. But when it talks about the priesthood of Melchizedek, it does not give us any of those facts. So the truth is, there, there, that can mean one of two things. You know, either, you know, it could mean Melchizedek was an actual person. I, I don't think so. But it, it could mean that. But the Bible does not give those things, thus making it legally a priesthood without having any of those things. You know, you know what I'm saying? Because said so an order of something, you know, you have to see a, see a starting of it, but none of those things are given. Okay, none of those none of those things are given, and so I think it's safe to assume that that would make him Jesus Christ. But either way, even if it's not, because those things aren't given, and God kind of put his stamp of approval on it, it proves that it was a legitimate order recognized by God. Therefore, Jesus Christ is qualified because he meets the qualifications of the Messiah. He was the Messiah. He proved to be the son of God. And God said he was going to make a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So he, you know what, what Paul's doing here, these things don't matter a whole lot to us, but they did matter to a people who were under the law. Okay. I understand we're Americans. Law means nothing to us. All right. Okay. And we're Americans. We have a constitution, but our leaders don't give a flip about it. And most of our country doesn't give a flip about it. That's why they're succeeding and shutting churches down right now, because our leaders don't give a flip about the constitution. They could care less about it. But you know, the truth is it is, you know, a legal document that they should be following. And, you know, thankfully, there's some people who actually have an appreciation for the Constitution. There's some governors that have an appreciation for the Constitution. And even if they think it's best for churches to close, they're saying we can't do that. They're recognizing that because they actually have a love for law and understand that there were many Jews that had a love for the law. And they're saying we can't do this. It's breaking the law. But you know what Paul's doing here? He's going real deep into the law and showing, hey, no, it's not against the law. But folks, is this not deep stuff? All right, it is. It's very deep, and that's why he said this is strong meat. This is for those that are skillful in the word. You know, if Paul would have went to the average, you know, Hebrew church back in those days, if it was like the average Baptist church, and he brings up the order of Melchizedek, people would have been looking at him, staring at him like a calf staring at a new gate. They'd be like, "What are you even talking about?" I didn't know Psalms mentioned anything about Melchizedek. Who's Melchizedek? You know, but people who were familiar with the stories, like, wait a minute. You know what? He's right because 
there was that priesthood of Melchizedek. We do see Abraham giving him tithes. You know, that, I mean, so people who knew the word are going to all of a sudden start paying attention. You know what? Jesus is legit as, uh, the, uh, as, a, pre, as, a, as a high priest. So let's look at a few other things. So, because the Jews also, they held Abraham an, up in higher regard than anyone. And Paul is showing them, he's proving to them from their own scriptures that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Because who was it that the Jews were always bringing up? We have Abraham as our father. But look at what he says in verse 3 of Hebrews 7. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth the priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Okay, Abraham's tithing to him. Okay, So that shows that he's greater. And look at this. This is something else. This is deep too. This just shows how important the law was, and this is something that they would have recognized. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, who received the office of the priesthood, and the Levites were held in high regard too. Why? Because they received the office of the priesthood. It says, uh, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them, received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises and without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. So another fact that it gets here, we see Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Well, what would they do in the Old Testament? The father would bless the son, wouldn't they? You know why? Because the father was greater than the son. The less was blessed of the better. If you had two important people come together, the more important person would bless the less important person. We don't see Abraham, who they held in highest regard, blessing Melchizedek. We see Melchizedek blessing Abraham. The Jews would get that. Now, we don't go around doing a lot of that today, do we? Yeah, that's not something we do a whole lot. Okay. Now, if you were Catholic, you'd understand a little better because, you know, imagine if you were Catholic and you get blessed by the Pope. You know, I mean, most, most Catholics would be like, man, you know, most Catholics, they're not going to go and bless the Pope, right? Because they understand he's above them, right? And so the Jews would have understood this too. So he's saying, remember in that, in those three verses in Genesis 14 that you read, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. He's, he's greater than Abraham. Abraham paid him tithes. And not only that, now I would have never come up with this. Okay? But look, listen to what Paul said in verse 8. So then here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them, of whom it is witness that he liveth. And as I may so say, Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham, for yet he was in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, again, in our culture we don't think about this, but this mattered to them. He's showing them that technically Levi, who received the tithes from them, is credited for paying tithes to Melchizedek, showing again Melchizedek superior to Levi. I wouldn't have gotten that from reading Genesis 14. But can you see why? You see stuff like that. It's like, good night. All of a sudden, I want to pay a little more attention to the Scriptures because this is all obviously true facts that was given under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. Now, Said, so I don't think we're we're necessarily meant to pull something like that out of the scriptures, but the apostle Paul or whoever wrote the book of Hebrews did. 
Why? Because it was now time for that to be revealed. And God, and God did that. He put that story, what almost seems like a random story back in there, for the purpose of blowing the minds of the Hebrews one of these days, who, had, who was, he knew were going to love that law, and, and, and rightfully so, but he, he wants them to be saved. He wants them to understand that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the high priest. And they need to trust in what he does to get them saved and not in what they do. So it says, um, so basically he's shown, so I personally believe that Melchizedek was Jesus Christ, but either way you look at it, Melchizedek's an extremely interesting character whose story teaches us things that prove Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the law of God. Because again, another thing that the Jews held, you know, the ones who are right with God held in highest regard was the scriptures. Okay? Now, often when you see people being sticklers to things, we think of the Pharisees, don't we? Because you know they like to you know tithe of mint and anise and cumin, but that was a problem because they would omit the weightier matters. You know, they would zero in on one tiny little thing. But they were hypocrites because they would ignore big things. They would strain it in that and they would swallow a camel. But understand, things like the Levitical priesthood was a big deal. Things like the animal sacrifices, those were big deals, weren't they? Those were huge deals. And so any a Jew who was actually right with God during that time, they're going to care about the little things as well as the big things. So somebody coming along and telling them, new high priest, no sacrifices, they're going to question that and they're going to say, what about the law of God? What about the Old Testament? These things, this is the word of God. These things, he, you know, he promised in the book of Psalms, he was going to preserve these things forever. These things obviously mean something. And remember, Jesus didn't come to destroy the law. Okay? He came to fulfill it. All right? And the, you know, the dispensationalists, they just want to like throw it all out. no. We need all these things. These things all point us to Jesus Christ. They clearly point to Jesus Christ. And so, I mean, literally, we have almost three chapters of the book of Hebrews that is teaching deep doctrine based off really four verses in the Old Testament. Three in the book of Genesis and one in the book of Psalms. And, you know, there... Only God can write something like that. To me, stuff like this is just proof that the Bible is the Word of God. You you can't make up something like that, folks. You, listen, I've seen people pull weird things out of the Scriptures, you know, and weird coincidences. But you know, at the end of the day, those things always break down somewhere and you know get really weird. Okay? I just I saw a thing today, some guy doing some weird numerology stuff. He was talking about nine being the number of fruitfulness, and then King James has nine letters and 1611 one plus six plus one plus one equals nine and he's doing all these weird things with nine and I'm just are you serious you know, and but you know there are you know, and I think some things are coincidence but I'm telling you you just you can't make stuff like this up you know you can't take Genesis 14 and then look at Hebrews 5 6 and 7 and just and be intellectually honest and say that this is not the Word of God that we have here. And, and so again, 
while chapter 14 is not one of the more familiar chapters in the book of Genesis, can we not see how important it is? This was the chapter. You and I, we have no problem. We, we don't even bat an eye at the thought of Jesus from the tribe of Judah being our high priest. We have no problem with that, do we? You know why? Because we're not Jews. That's not how we've been raised. That's not been our culture. You know, it means nothing to us. But it meant everything to them, you know, as, as it should have. And so Genesis chapter 14 is a very, very important chapter to prove the consistency of the Scriptures. Without Genesis 14, we have a huge legal problem with Jesus Christ being the high priest. All of a sudden now, according to the law that Jesus has fulfilled to the letter, every jot and tittle he's going to fulfill We've got a big, we've got a big legal problem, don't we? But we don't have a problem because all of the Old Testament is the Word of God, and we've got Genesis 14 that gives us the things that we need to make it all fit. So Genesis, so uh, when you're reading your Bible, so Genesis 14, most people are gonna just read through it real quick. There's too many hard names, too many hard places to read, can't understand. But literally, it is a key chapter in the Bible. It would, it would be like uh, a broken link in a chain if it wasn't there. And this is why God has preserved all of his... He had He had to preserve all of it. He had to preserve every every bit of it. And this is an example of that. So I, 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 I get excited when I read stuff like this. But anyway, with that, let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. So dear Lord, we thank you so much for all your blessings. Lord, we just thank you for uh, this amazing book that we have that you have given us. And dear God, I pray that this will just motivate us to study even more, Lord. I I know we're not going to pull anything like this out of the Scriptures, but Lord, one of these days when you reveal more things to us, I pray that it will be stuff that we're familiar with. I I pray that you'll uh, just help us to uh, dig deep, Lord, and just uh, have a love and an an awe for what we read in your Word. It truly is an amazing book, and I, I thank you for it. In your name we pray. Amen.